Welcome to the Wizardist Podcast. I'm Paul Canetti. This is episode 10. The 10th episode, I feel like this is a, a milestone of some sort. And very fittingly, I had on one of my very best friends, Stephen Tardick. I met Stephen back in my Apple days, and we became quick friends. And Stephen actually ended up marrying my best friend from growing up. And so Stephen was a groomsman at my wedding. I actually officiated their wedding. So we go pretty deep. Currently, Stephen runs creative at uh, one of the biggest Broadway agencies and the newest Broadway agency, RPM. They represent shows like Hamilton, uh, maybe you've heard of it, as well as other major Broadway productions. Uh, And so Stephen is the executive creative director, basically oversees everything relating to the marketing and and creative associated with these huge blockbuster Broadway brands. Uh, we talk a lot about the business of Broadway, um, how he got into it, and it's funny because I've known Stephen for a long time, and I learned so much during this podcast uh, just about how Broadway works, and it's such a specific and special industry that is so well-known and so sort of sought after, um, but really exists in this very unique bubble here in New York City. Um, And as I learned, they're in specific theaters that constitute what is on Broadway and anything else is not on Broadway. Uh, Then we go down a really interesting rabbit hole around design and automation and AI machine learning, you know, what of the creative process could actually eventually be outsourced to machines? And what does that mean for designers and creatives? And we touch upon one of my favorite topics, virtual reality, and uh, what that means for, you know, live experiential entertainment, like going to see a show. We also get into some reminiscing about our Apple days, about uh, managing busy schedules. Uh, Steven is definitely um, one of the people I turn to as far as productivity hacks, and we talk about that. And uh, yeah, it's just a fun and really informative conversation, so I hope you enjoy it. Um, This is episode 10, so... Uh, I am starting a tradition where every 10th episode, the intro music will be a little different. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Is it really a lookout? If it's an audio podcast, be on the here out. I don't know. Uh, Anyway, thank you for listening and helping me make it to 10 episodes. Here is to many more. And now I give you Stephen Tardick. Executive Creative Director at RPM. So... Do you edit this at all? Yes, if there's like really weird pauses or if okay. we bad stutter. Like I listen to everything at the end and then sort of edit yep. through. I was interested to hear that you deleted Twitter. Well, so this is a, a, an addiction that I've been struggling with. Um, 
basically I delete normally, I would say for the past three months, I do not have Twitter on my phone. The app is not on my phone, um, nor is Facebook, nor is Instagram, although I've never been big on Instagram or Snapchat or anything. There's no social media on my phone at all. That's so bizarre, um, especially I, for you. That's, I, it's bizarre for you. I have Hootsuite, which I found is a terrible experience as far as consuming tweets, but you can still send them. So the idea is, if an idea pops in my head, I want to tweet, I want to be able to tweet, but I don't want to be tempted to actually read other people's tweets or so check the notifications on my tweets. You use Hootsuite for your personal accounts. Yes. That's interesting. Only because it's the best app I've found to send tweets. Right. Though a lot of people, I mean, we use, in the marketing space, we use Hootsuite specifically for the monitoring. Mm -hmm. It's really great for all those saved searches. Uh, the biggest thing that's made Twitter uh, manageable for me is the mute feature. So, and I use TweetBot. Uh, I love those third-party apps. And the ability to turn off terms is a game changer. So give me some examples of terms that you have turned off. Game of Thrones, GOT. <laughs> uh, so I, I just, if you use GOT in your tweet, I'm not seeing it. Depending on my, uh, my mood and mental state, Trump will go on or off. Yeah, uh, that might help me. But yeah. then my feed would be empty. Right. <laughs> it ends up just being uh, discounts on tech products. You know what I find? So I follow the entire cast of Full House. <laughs> And uh, for the most part, they they don't ever tweet about Trump. So it's like I'll see like just a raging feed of you know some new outrage, and and I really try to follow people on both sides of the political spectrum. And there's outrage yeah. all around, and then they'll just be like you know like Candace Cameron, like right. watch my Christmas Popping special, in. you right. know. And it's like I would think Bob Saget would have a lot to say about what's <laughs> yes, happening nowadays. Yes. Well, that's the funny thing about Twitter, and that's what I like so much about it. Are you have your different Twitters? So there's the nerdy tech Twitter, and then in my world, there's the Broadway Twitter, and then you get the gay Twitter, and all these combined, that's where it's the most fun to me. Yes. Of course, the political Twitter, yes. the, everything's become the political Twitter. And when you tap into one of those Twitters, you really get exposed in a way that uh, that you don't necessarily in the course of your day. Oh, right. It's I am somebody who constantly cycles between niche hobbies. And the whenever I'm becoming interested in something, the first thing I do is follow 10 new people. And then all of a sudden, my curated feed is filled with people who are really into Dreamcast homebrewing. And <laughs> it's like, okay, look at that. This is my world right, now. And then they retweet someone that you didn't know about who's like a thought leader in that totally. space. And then, you, and then you start following them, and then you sort of go down the rabbit hole. I'm also very uh, ruthless about removing people from my Twitter feed. So I will unfollow people left and right. What if you are friends with them IRL? So this is another great feature in TweetBot is mm. you can permanently mute somebody. So it's the passive aggressive, right. you're not unfollowing I them. I rarely do that. Uh, I try not to be friends with people in real life that uh, would have the sort of personality <laughs> that would make them annoying well, I on think Twitter. More, I think more the people that I know that Follow me on Twitter, but they never, ever, ever tweet. Mm. So following them really serves no purpose. 
but right. you don't want to unfollow them because it's rude. Right, the cleanup moments. Mm-hmm. The if other trying to keep your ratio healthy. You of know. course, all of that, all that balancing, <laughs> brand balancing. I also love Tweetbot has a great feature where you can turn off people's retweets, and that is a game changer. Uh, so you only see first party tweets. Exactly. Some people are artful with their retweets. Other people, they just blitz, you know, mm-hmm. retweet, retweet, retweet. So it's yeah, nice some people do. Although I find it's a great Brands in particular. To, well, yeah, I guess for you, because mm-hmm. you have to probably follow a lot of brands. Right. If you uh, if you work in the Broadway space or you're interested in theater and you start following shows, every day around 5 o'clock, you can tell the social media managers have logged on and they just retweet all the things people are saying about how much they like the show that day. Right. And it's quite unnerving to see this sea of, oh my God, best show ever, best show ever, best show ever. So we're always very mindful of that and avoiding those seas. Yeah, it's so true. And like, if you happen to be on Twitter when that's happening. Oh, the worst. You know, so every new tweet at the top of your feed is just like, boom, boom, boom. Um, So you work in Broadway. I sure do. You work in tech insofar as it overlaps with Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, but your career has followed sort of an interesting path in and out, I would say, of those two areas. <laughs> <laughs> um, so maybe if we just want to sort of back up and start at the beginning um, or or really start wherever you want to start. But like how how did you get here? <laughs> it's... It's been a uh, winding and uh, unconventional path from from there to here. I mean, I've I, I, much like you, I would assume, uh, I've always been one of those people who uh, is obsessed with the technology that I'm using. Uh, and I think you can really tell when somebody has that tech gene. It's like, I like using tech products that don't work the way that they should. I like the raw edges. I like diving into the betas. I just, I've always been that person who like wants to try the, the bleeding edge tech to get the first glimpse of what that experience can be. Uh, and that's, I mean, that's from when I was five, uh, six, you know, I had a, my, my dad was, my dad is very similar in that regard. Uh, he had a 14.4 kilobyte modem that we used to log into Prodigy back in the day. Uh, that, I mean, that was a moment we used to have a, a router where you would pick up a handset, like a regular phone, a telephone, dial the phone number to log in. And then you would set your handset onto this receiver. Really? Do so you remember how modems used to make all those noises? Yeah. I guess it was all like touch tone or whatever. Yeah. That's how they were like communicating. That's how they worked. And so literally this, with the sound, this device didn't even have a self-contained dialer. It was you literally you put your so you, handset. It was, it was using like the speaker from the phone. Exactly. It's almost like a QR code or something. Yeah. Like audio QR An code. Audio like audio retro some sort QR of, code. Like like some unique sequence that right. did something. I don't like. I still don't really know what's happening. It's there. so bizarre. It's so bizarre. And then it was like all the data broken down into audio. I assume, I assume so. Right. I mean, I, you would think it was almost like a Morse code of sorts. Yeah, or I'm thinking even like a fax machine, like all the things that connected to phone wires besides phones. Right. Like what were they transmitting? 
Oh, the fax machines. Those are the day. Did you ever have a fax machine? You did. With those, that paper, that just awful paper in the... Oh, oh in like the, with the little dots on the sides and stuff? The pa- Our or, fax machine, it had this waxy paper that for some reason just had a very gross feeling to me. It might have just been that you, your family bought we waxy paper. A, like I'm pretty sure you could use any paper. That's very possible. I don't think oh, fax man. machines required waxy paper. I was obsessed with our fax machine, and we used to get fax spam. Like that was a fax thing. Spam. Yeah, people would like all of a sudden you would have an advertisement sitting in your fax tray. Yeah, I became very into this, and when I was in mm, college, I'd love to start the first like fax ad network. Right, we should really. This feels like something that could have a retro comeback. Like, <laughs> like vinyls vinyl. back, cassettes are back. It's time for the fax resurgence. Love it. <laughs> uh, but I digress. So always been into tech. Uh, when I was deciding what to study in school, uh, I was trying to figure out what to do with that. Uh, programming was never my my jam. I always liked the I always liked programs, but my brain just doesn't have that that piece of it. So I decided to go more in the creative route. Uh, I picked the college that I. Uh, thought would rattle my parents the most to purchase college. <laughs> it's quite, we, we had quite an interesting uh, trip there uh, when we were doing our college tour to pick where to go. Uh, and it was a school filled with a bunch of fabulous, bizarre, uh, raw artists. And I was like, yep, these are the people I want to spend time around. Um, but I was coming to that from that sort of nerdy tech background and trying to merge all that together. And I studied new media, which uh, was a very new program. I was only the second class uh, to graduate from it. And it was the most perfect project for what I was interested in. We just learned everything. We learned photography and video editing and audio editing. The idea was you took two years of just general purpose uh, computer design and art programs. And then the last two, you decided to find a focus and to apply it to something that interested you. So it, that, that curriculum, it, it's what makes me, uh, <laughs> so it makes me dangerous now. I know just enough uh, of all of those pieces, not enough to be an expert by any stretch, but just enough to uh, be able to communicate with the experts in those fields. And to like call their bluff. Yeah. <laughs> if they're like, oh, I'm that's going to take two weeks. I know enough like, to be mm. annoying. Exactly. Right. Uh, but it, it, it's uh, it's paid off. So that that's what I studied, and uh, theater became a key interest to me later in life during high school. And during college, I tried to find a way to merge those two. And uh, my senior thesis at Purchase, college, that's where I went, SUNY Purchase. Uh, my senior thesis was an online documentary about uh, theater fans called I Hope I Get It. It was focused on all the lotteries. I remember uploading it to YouTube, which back then was brand new and yeah. no one knew what to do with YouTube. Like the first video on YouTube. Oh my goodness. And I, the, the big conversation back then was YouTube versus Vimeo and which one, which one you should use. Like there was a moment in time where they were both at the same level, which is an interesting, yeah. uh, an interesting thing to consider. Uh, but that's, that's sort of how I built the base for my career, uh, which really spun into the idea of, okay, now that I have this skill set, what can I do with this to make money? You know, the question we all ask ourselves at some point. And marketing 
was the direction that I, I chose to take. And uh, pretty much ever since then, I've been on a path to uh, where I am now, starting, of course, at the Apple Store. Boop, boop. <laughs> I feel like for a designer, specifically like a user experience designer, there's no better place to get your like 10,000 Malcolm Gladwell hours <laughs> than to work in an Apple store. It's so true. Like to just be there every day and just see people actually interacting with the software, with the hardware, not in the way that you imagine they would or they should, right. but the way that they actually do. Um, and specifically for us, teaching lessons and understanding what are the ways that someone is actually looking to use these tools, you know, not just selling them a phone or something, but actually sitting down with them and understanding like what their goals are. Um, I actually think I didn't realize it at the time, but that was really what informed a lot of my understanding of iOS, for instance, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so when I went on to design iOS apps and to build a platform that lets other people design iOS apps, like, all of that was born out of this very intimate understanding of how people actually like use their phones. Right. Well, we were there at such a pivotal moment. We were there, I mean, you started before the iPhone. I started in April 2006. Okay, so you had a solid year before pre iOS. And when did you get? I joined a month after the iPhone came out. Yeah. Yeah, it was, it I got was my summer first, of 2007. My first gray hairs the week the iPhone came out. Not <laughs> no, like without exaggeration. I believe it. Um, and that was a crazy moment. And it, it really, at that point, you could see so quickly. Uh, I mean, we sat with people who had never used computers before and had to try to learn this system of file management and... Uh, desktop metaphors and uh, trying to understand Windows, even just the idea of application Windows uh -huh. and and how to use a mouse. The uh, the I mean, when you really think about the complexity of that interface tool, it's it, it really opened my eyes to something I had totally taken for granted. Right, because you grew life. up with it. Yeah, you learned. I learned how to use a mouse at five, and right. so to watch people struggle with it, very smart, successful people who just could not wrap their head around the idea of moving a file, uh, and even just the idea of a file versus an app. Just the whole virtual environment. Ironically, by the way, five-year-olds today will never use a mouse. Right. Um, but right. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, and right, I mean, they were celebrities even would come in for those appointments and, and embarrassed to say they didn't know did I ever tell, were you there when Lisa Jobs came in? No. She came in. She had duplicates in her address book. <laughs> <laughs> it was like a genius bar thing that got handed off to me. And I was like, oh my God, it's code orange. I was like, I feel like there's someone in your address book that you could call about this. <laughs> you know? Can you imagine the pressure? Uh, well, I guess you can. Did you, you helped her? I helped her. I, I mean, she knew that I knew who she was, but we didn't really like talk about it. Um, and she also looks, I mean, exactly like Steve Jobs. <laughs> like, I mean, in a, in a, as a, as a, Woman, was she wearing a turtleneck? You know what I mean? But like, uh, no, she she was just the nicest person, and and but it was super interesting that she, like there were so many things going through my head. Like, 
why are you here? Like, <laughs> like, like I feel like there are other There's channels that you could people. take to do this, but right. here you are. Um, Anyway, uh, I don't even remember how it worked out. I'm assuming I got her dupes out. Um. <laughs> I once worked with Kathleen Turner. I helped Ooh. her manage her calendar. She was having calendar issues. Oh, yeah. And boy, she had an interesting calendar. It was, <laughs> she had all of her shows blocked out and then lunch with fabulous people. It, that that's, was a moment. I mean, I had people come in that wanted, they were editing porn. Oh, all the time. I feel like that was the theme. All the time. People would be flipping through their photo galleries. And then, and you could tell some people were really embarrassed yeah, about the some photos people, that like, kind of were there. Other to, people just leer on them. Yeah, that's why yeah. they were there, just to show it to you. Um, no, I like helped someone in Final Cut, like literally. A le- like A legitimate Yeah, like, I mean, I don't editor. know how legitimate, but like <laughs> he was, I mean, he was learning to, to edit. Um one time, just thinking about celebrity types, uh, oh, what's her name? What's like the model, like name 90s supermodels? Go. Naomi, you're asking the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) I I only know Broadway divas. I will think of it, but, um, but anyway, someone that I recognized right away as like, like someone like, like of that era, you know? And I was like, oh my God, Donna. And, and, um, I didn't have one of the checkout things, the mm. easy pays, mm-hmm. they call them. Um, and she, whatever, she wanted to buy something. So I like grabbed some specialist off the floor and was like, you know, you need to help me. Um, and it was very clear that this kid just had no idea who she was. <laughs> and he was like asking for her ID to verify the credit card. And I was just like dying. That's like, brilliant. I thought I was pulling like a cool move by like, oh, so you can skip the line here. Right. Like, Johnny, come here. You can help me out. And he's like, excuse me, ma'am. Like, don't <laughs> let me know. And I was like, oh, my God, please, please, please. Um, yeah, there are some pretty funny stories. But but as far as as really understanding tech, I think, I think it did tell me a lot. And it's it's the most experience I've ever had just interacting with the public. Oh, well, I mean, beyond the the computers and the iPads, the the interpersonal skills that you are really forced to learn or you leave. <laughs> uh, it's I mean, I use I use those tactics to this day. I mean, mm-hmm. the idea of uh, not over promising if you don't know something, acknowledging you don't, and looking together for an answer. I, mean, I don't know, but let's find out. I don't know. Let's find out. I mean, I still to this day say that it's all the time in client meetings, and the idea of helping people by allowing them to find the answers as opposed to yes. doing it yourself. I mean, they used to. You remember this probably, but you would sit on your hands during those training sessions so that you didn't touch their computer or even point at their computer. Right. If you ever seen a normal person try to help like their family member learn quote unquote something on the computer, what they do is they just grab it. Do and, it. Yeah, exactly. Say, I think there was like an SNL sketch where Jimmy Fallon was like the company IT guy. And yes. after like two seconds would be like, move over and like just like bump somebody out of their seat and do it. Because um, that's the instinct. Right. You know? And at Apple they were so uh, thoughtfully insistent that Everything is driven by the person. And yes. sometimes it would almost come off as patronizing where you know right. you, you weren't even supposed to say click the photos button. You were supposed to say, uh, well, there's what do you think you would do if you wanted yeah, to open exactly. up the photos like, app? Yeah, what do you think? Like a therapist. Session. And they would say, Do I click here? And it would be the wrong like, button. Do you think you should click there? Right. You know? Say, why don't we try that out? 
oh, no, that opened up stickies. What else? What else could do this? Right. There was a and certain then you spent point. 20 minutes learning right. how to quit stickies. <laughs> how do you think you would quit stickies? <laughs> and at a certain point, the and they've like clicked lovely, on the desktop in the meantime, so they're oh, not even the, in stickies. So when now, they go to, to quit, they're, oh, they're in the finder. Trying to explain area of focus oh was, I, I mean, it's just like giving me hot flashes just thinking another, about this. Another thing that I use a lot is just when describing telling someone where to look on a screen, any size screen. Um, one of the Apple methodologies was just to call out like the quadrant, like look on the upper right, right. and you'll see a small button, looks like two circles, like like yeah. that sort of direction. Um, all those works. things. Uh, not to mention like management, oh. as we both got into leadership 100%. positions. and I mean, I really think that is the best place for someone out of college to go and like, learn if they're interested in tech design customer service Mm -hmm. um any of the above and not to mention the the people that apple hires and they draw in such an incredible group of artists and uh obviously tech-based people but really an eclectic and really diverse group of uh young professionals, not even, I shouldn't even say that, uh, uh, not even young professionals, but just people who are, have a similar worldview, if that even makes sense. Yeah. And in, in a, not necessarily in a like political or cultural way, but in a like ethos way, like, right. Somehow like not even like-minded, but like like-spirited or something, you know? Yeah, yeah, it just good people. And I, to this day, I have more good friends, some of my best friends, here we are. Case in uh, point. Case in point. Uh, my best friends came from my time at the Apple store, the way that other people talk about their college years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, no, it's it, my Apple years were almost... It was kind of like... The like college, college years, because yeah. you basically put right a bunch of young creative people in the city. I don't know if it's like this at all Apple stores, but for us, you know, um, all of us had just sort of moved to the city. Everyone mm-hmm. was going out all the time. Like it was very exciting in general. Oh. Um, but then also there really were just crazy talented people. Like we've talked about this, but when you think about what all of sort of our class of people, <laughs> you know, yeah. are doing you know, Ian Axel's being nominated for a Grammy and, you know, didn't tell me Scott is touring with Bon Jovi. Yeah. Um, One of our, our buddies, Scott is a a major lighting designer and interactive campaign developer. Like you have people running TV studios. Mm -hmm. Um, Jess Brillhart's like running all VR content at Google. Uh, you know, Lauren's um, at Shapeways, an early uh, 3D printing yes. evangelist. You've started a, an incredible company. No, it really is crazy. And the list goes on. I mean, and even when we were there, I mean, Bernie Minosa was a genius who uh, had to take time off sometimes because he was the touring bassist for Paul Simon. <laughs> And he worked alongside us right. there at the all, time. All in the t-shirts. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, and these are just the ones that we're thinking of like off the top of our head at this one store. Right. And there's still many of these people are maybe not these people, but there's still a great group of people who we worked with who are still there and doing an amazing oh, job. Kicking ass. And yeah. yeah. It's, it's a great place to work. And even though we ended up 
you know, finding different paths forward. It's to this day, I just think, wow, that was a really good job. And that's, yeah. and I still recommend people applying there all the time. hundred percent. And it's competitive. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not easy. It pays well. I mean, <laughs> I have had jobs after the Apple store that had professional titles that paid less. Uh, to this day, I've never had health insurance as good as the or <laughs> insurance. Or stock plan. Any benefits. As right. good. Um, uh, yeah. I mean, that was, that was quite a moment. And Really, it was at the Apple Store. I, I met, uh, I met one of my friends, Scott, who created a piece of theater. This very bizarre show called Sailor Man, which was a uh, bloody and gruesome interpretation of Popeye. Uh, <laughs> when I say he wrote it, uh, he downloaded scripts of the original Popeye. <laughs> cartoon and then just put them on stage but made all the violence uh fully realized and bloody i think you saw that uh, multiple times multiple times um, it really put the fringe in fringe festival that is certainly the case uh but yeah it was literally a live action version of verbatim scenes from popeye essentially exactly um, it, just with buckets of blood added into the mix and through that, so Scott wrote this show. He submitted it to the Fringe Festival. It got accepted. Uh, I remember we sent in our application bloodstained. So oh it was like beaten up and had these red marks on it. That, I just want to pause there. Just a, a story that I remember about Scott, because I didn't know about the bloodstained thing. <laughs> but, you know, he applied to Yale. And the and he, I think he got either like rejected or waitlisted or something, some initial period. So to convince them, he started sending them every piece of art he'd ever done since he was a, a, like a baby that <laughs> so his parents Scott, had kept. Of course. So and every week he, or day, I don't know, but in separate packages, he sent like every drawing he made in first grade and just like kept doing it. And anyway, I guess it worked because eventually he got in. Um, but that's why it doesn't surprise me that that's he put Scott Peterman blood on his French festival application, right. you know? <laughs> He knows how to stand out. And so with that, he, he got in, he turned to me one day and he's like, hey, I need someone to produce this thing. Do you want to make that happen? Kind of sounded like it. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, of course. And so I produced that run at the Fringe Festival. And uh, producing, uh, I, sh I should put air quotes around that, uh, producing in a traditional sense means you raise money and you hire people and you make sure the show goes on. Uh, producing at the Fringe Festival means you do literally everything. And so that that involved mopping up blood in between shows so that <laughs> the next interpretive dance piece uh, using uh, foam peanuts could move in uh, all the way up to creating ads because we needed ads and we needed a poster and we needed a logo and I was like, all right, I'll hop in Photoshop and make that happen. And so uh, that was my first theatrical marketing experience. The branding was amazing for that show. Thank you. I still look back at that. I'm like, no, that worked. We did this bloody anchor and we had a good time. We had a whole brand system for a five performance run and it went well. And uh, the Fringe, <laughs> sillily enough, gave us an award for that show. And then a theater called us and said, we want to extend this and make it an off-Broadway run. And we're like, great. So we 
did that, and uh, we ran uh, three times a week in this basement of a theater, which was, I am not exaggerating, run by somebody connected to the Russian mob, and he would... (laughs) He would leave the country for a few weeks and then come back and say, okay, the theater's staying open. And it was so, it was, it was a true authentic New York experience. You didn't realize that, but they were literally just laundering money through oh, Sailor Man. Sailor, right, exactly. Like the was, IRS that was is going to have a lot of questions That was why they, they let you do the show. <laughs> Please put your right, show like, oh, here. They really like it. Right. You're like, no, no, no. Right. Oh, According just, to their paper, we were just a massive hit. We were bringing in hundreds of thousands of dollars in our 99 seat basement. Uh, But while we were doing that, uh, the show started to get attention in the industry and the artistic director of Ars Nova saw the posters and saw the ads and came to the show. Um, at that time, we did the building didn't have a liquor license, so we just put a bottle of whiskey on a stool at the front of the stage and just told the audience to have at it. And I remember we were all nervous that he was there because he was he's a big deal. His name's Jason Egan. He's an incredible artistic director. Um, and he was the only person that night who <laughs> used the whiskey and he kept coming back to it. And I was like, I'm going to like this guy. And after the show, he was asking who did our marketing. And I said, I did it. And he was at the time looking for a marketing manager of his theater. And he said, I know you have no you know, traditional experience in marketing, but you should apply. I did. I had a handful of interviews, one after the other with their whole board, um, another amazing group of people. And then they took a chance on me and hired me. And that's how I got into theatrical marketing 10 years ago. Oh, and at that time, you know, obviously I had a passion for theater and this opportunity mm-hmm. came up, but you had considered other types of marketing. Like you had the stint at Bonobos. Right. Um, yeah, it, it always seemed like a logical place to be. It's, it, you know, I, I'm a big fan of creative. I love working on creative projects. Uh, I try to approach them in a unique and unconventional way. And that oftentimes aligns well with marketing. If, you know, the best marketing is unexpected. And so that always felt like a good fit for me. And then you layer in the tech element and... You know, at a moment when, I mean, it's crazy to think about it, but 10 years ago, uh, using digital marketing tactics was still early for yeah. a lot of... And if you knew how to do that, that was a real edge. Yeah, exactly. And so there was a point in time, and it does feel like this has shifted, and I'm sure you feel this too, to some degree. There was a point in time where being somewhere and knowing digital inside and out it really got you pretty far. Like yeah. you, you just leapfrog because it's like, oh, someone who knows what Twitter is, <laughs> and he, we, wow, here, go do Twitter, you right. know, for our brand. And uh, you know, nowadays, it's you don't have that same advantage. Well, like when we have college interns during the summer, right? It just goes without saying. They know how to use social media. Right. They understand the internet, apps. But also, like, they all seem to know how to use Photoshop. And they all seem to know how to use Excel. Like, those things were all unique, you know. Oh, that used to be your thing. Like, you would have the (laughs) one. Right. It's amazing. And now every, yeah, exactly. Everybody has these skills. Um, And it's, 
it, it was a good moment to break into the industry. And uh, I was able to use that to distinguish myself a bit. And from Ars Nova, I'll just sort of fast forward a bit. Uh, I hopped around. I worked internally with a Broadway producer in-house as a digital marketing manager. And that was another one of those like uh, uh, understanding of many traits, but expert of none, uh, where I learned how to do Google marketing and learned SEM and SEO and uh, more into website development, uh, but really you know, sort of across the board. And at that point, I was looking for my next step, and I decided I wanted to get into the agency world. And there's an agency called Spotco on Broadway. It's an incredible ad agency. Uh, they had a role open for social media manager. They were looking to build a social media department, and uh, I was interested in that. I always liked social as a creative platform, but I was concerned about, really for the first time in my career, focusing on a single thing. Um, and I went back and forth about whether or not that was the right move to make. But ultimately, moving into that role, it gave me the chance to laser focus on one specific thing. And it it was exciting to kind of bring all of that thinking that I usually spread across so many things and now just point it in one specific direction. And things worked out well. And yeah, that was sort of the next phase of, of my uh, career. And then... From there, uh, you know, turns out social media marketing is really just full-on branding and campaign development just in a very specific direction. And I moved from the world of social to digital creative more broadly. And the same tactics, this goes back to the Apple conversation, the things you learn interacting with people every single day and taking a static brand and giving it life and extending it beyond just the artwork, those skills apply to websites and they apply to banner ads and they apply to video content. Right, those are all just sort of, you know, potential outputs for that sort of thinking. Exactly. So just to give sort of a, a snapshot, like what are some of the shows you're working on So right at, the, at this yeah, moment at this in point your in time, timeline? I worked on at any given time, somewhere between 9 and 15 clients. So it was a wide range of shows. And it would range from uh, big Broadway musicals like Kinky Boots to very small, intimate plays like Mothers and Sons, which ran for three months. Uh, we would work on hits. Uh, we worked on a show called The Gentleman's Guide to Love and Murder, uh, won the Tony, ran for a few years, and then we worked on flops, which is the term we use for shows that don't recoup their investment. Uh, I worked on a show called Soul Doctor, which was about a rock star rabbi named Shlomo Karlobach. Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I missed that one. <laughs> you and the rest of everyone. Uh, and you know what? You learn a lot more from those uh, from those really tough sells than you do from the ones that sell themselves. So it's uh, every every show gives you its own lesson. It's interesting, and and maybe this will sort of lead you into where you are now, but like something that I've always noticed about your approach um, and been jealous of is that you really seem to maintain the creative integrity of being creative. Uh, in, in so far as 
as you seem to approach problems truly from that sort of place of like, oh my God, wouldn't it be cool if this and then this happened? And even though it's like off the wall or, or unconventional or seems weird, like like nothing sort of off the table. Mm-hmm. And I feel like a lot of the things that I did in my career earlier, especially like with the Love and Logic videos or like different things were really just sort of like whatever popped into my head, like let's do it. Um, and I found what now running a business that gets limited dramatically by making sure the business runs, right. making sure revenue comes in, making sure that our we give our clients what they want, even though I don't always agree with what they want, but they're the ones paying. Like all of these other forces sort of come in where I feel like the the sort of boundary uh, of of how creative you can think um, somehow comes, I don't know, like the walls close in a little bit and, and some of that might be real or perceived, but I find that sometimes I, even at the very beginning of the process, I'm limiting myself prematurely based right. on what all those other factors inevitably will be, you know? So do you yeah. find that like how involved in the business of these shows are you? And do you believe that there should be some siloing where it's like the person that's thinking about recouping the investment is specifically the person worrying about that is very specifically not the person coming up with the crazy marketing and branding ideas or, or are you too deep in now that you sort of are doing both and just have found a way to balance that? Well, the Broadway industry, it's, it's very unique from any other, uh, any other sort of business. Uh, the way every show is structured is that there's a producer and they're essentially the CEO of the show. So they're the ones who hire the writer, the uh, musicians, the cast. They ultimately have the final decision about everything, uh, the lead producer on a show. Uh, they also raise the money for the show. So they go out and find investors and uh, most Broadway shows, uh, a Broadway show costs at least $3 million to put on stage, but a musical, you're looking at somewhere between eight and $15 million. It's a lot of money. And the recoupment, the, the number of shows that uh, actually make all of that money back is low. Uh, 70% of shows, give or take, lose money. So it's a rough batting average. Um, So the producers have a huge amount of responsibility on their plate to get their show off the ground and help the artists make the best show possible. And they also take a very active role in the marketing and advertising. In fact, every week, most Broadway shows have an ad meeting, and that's the moment when all of the different teams get together to really talk about the show on a macro level. Ad meetings aren't usually just about advertising. They're about ticket sales, and we have somebody from the box office there to talk about which performances need help, what what are the trends, really the business of keeping a show open. Of course, you have the advertising team, and we talk about our strategy to do that, uh, but it, it really becomes this um, meeting about the life of a show. When is a show typically supposed to recoup? Like, for instance, in the movie business, I feel like it's more public where a movie has sort of their opening weekend, and they'll compare that those proceeds to how much it costs to make the movie, yep. even though that movie will continue to make money well after that right. opening weekend. Right. So what's sort of the equivalent 
in theater? So th- you want to obviously recoup as quickly as possible. Sure. Um, runaway hits uh, recoup uh, typically around, let's say, seven months into their run if they are just a smash hit. But of course, it depends on so many factors. How big is the theater? How many seats do they have to sell every night? Uh, how much did it cost to put the show on stage? And then there's something that films don't have to deal with, which is that you have to keep spending money to keep your show running right. every single week. So how much of that 8 to 15, let's say, for a musical is spent before the show launches? And how much is spent, is, is on reserve basically to last those first seven months or whatever? So every show does have that reserve, which they can dig into if they need to, that gives it a security blanket, but it's usually a small portion. Of so the idea is to become profitable right away. I mean, as if you look at night per night. Right. So we have a phrase, uh, we talk about hitting the nut. So the nut is the weekly cost to keep the lights on, you know, paying your rent, your actors. Um, it's very expensive for any Broadway show to go up and run. I mean, the smallest shows can get away with, let's say, Three hundred and fifty or four hundred thousand dollars per week, um, but a big show can cost nine hundred thousand dollars just to pay everybody and keep the lights on. So you have to make one point two million dollars or one point three million dollars even to pull in, you know, three hundred thousand dollars of profit a week. And if your recoupment, if your capitalization was fifteen million dollars, you start to boil that out. It's a lot of weeks in order to recoup. Um, so it it really forces you to make some big choices as a producer. Are you going to build a go for broke Broadway spectacle, or are you going to build a small intimate show, uh, that can hopefully, uh, keep costs low enough so you can just keep on running at a long, at a long distance. And so as an ad agency, we're constantly, um, thinking about, uh, you know what resources a show has, uh, what how their advertising budget matches up with uh, the consumer demand, and what we need to do to make a show stand out. So, if a show costs a lot less, I'm assuming the ticket prices are still around the same. So, basically, your margins get a lot better if you somehow find a way to put on a low cost. Yeah, you know, production. Every producer takes their own approach. I mean, Frozen is coming to Broadway. Wow. Yeah, uh, next year, I believe, that later this year. I'm I think it opens in the spring. Assuming that's not going to be your sort of quiet, intimate the, experience. Frozen is certainly going to be a show that delivers a huge amount of spectacle, and delivering a huge amount of spectacle requires an investment. Like I'm thinking of Dear Evan Hansen or something, mm-hmm. which even as I watched it, sort of struck me as as like a I was watching it in a Broadway theater, but it somehow felt like a a small theater, almost like community theater. And then, you know, they put a couple of those displays up like at the last minute to make (laughs) it fancier or something. Um, But I I mean, I liked it. It suited the it suited the. Yeah, I mean, Dear Evan Hansen's a beautiful show and it's in one of the smaller houses. It's in the music box. Uh, it's a smaller cast, so that's a key consideration right. to how much it costs to Less run every week. Um, to but pay. the the magic of a show like Dear Evan Hansen is that it's uh, small in its physical production scale and in the size of the cast, but it delivers this huge emotional wallop. Uh, a similar show was Fun Home a few years ago, which, again, very small cast playing in a very small theater, so costs per week were low, but... Um, but man, did that show 
just <laughs> pack a punch, break you. Yeah. In such a beautiful and profound way. So that model is something that a lot of producers are leaning to more and more. One of our clients is the, uh, is the Broadway musical Chicago, which has been running for over 20 years. And again, that's a show that, uh, delivers such an incredible, huge experience to people who see it. That's why they keep coming decade after decade. Um, but the physical production is sparse and they've really, embraced that fact and put the emphasis on the dancing and the costumes and the story. And you almost forget that you're watching what's mostly a barren stage Hmm. for two hours. Do the producers go typically to like the same investor pool again and again? Is it sort of like the VC model where these same investors are essentially investing in multiple shows per year, 70 of them, the 70% are going to fail, yep. but the 30% more than make up for the, for the total. Yes. Like, so like if you're a Broadway investor, you never just invest in one show because you're basically, that is a very bad idea. Right? <laughs> right. You shouldn't, if anyone's listening and you're offered to invest in one show, don't do that. Well, it's funny because, because I, I just had on Angela Lee, who's one of our Maz investors and the founder of 37 angels. It's like mm, a, an yep. all women uh, angel investment network. And one of the things she said is you really shouldn't get into angel investing with startups unless you're ready to invest in 10 companies. Mm, um, that's smart. And I thought that was really interesting. So it sounds like there's a parallel. I do think there there is one difference. So to answer your question, the same people do tend to invest in multiple shows. And there are people who have become career investors. And every season they pick three shows and they write their checks and uh, typically a Broadway investment. It depends on whether you want to be above the title or not. So every time you go to a theater, there is a house board, which has the name of every producer on the show. And producers that are above the title typically put in, uh, obviously, a higher amount of money. It might be a $100,000 threshold or a quarter of a million dollar threshold. But getting above the title producing credits is very important to some producers. So if you invest, you get a producer credit. If you invest, you're an investor. So you could probably find an above-the-title producer and write them a $25,000 check, and they will bundle that together, and they are the producer. I see. You're an investor. And so the reason people like being above the title, um, they're more involved in the process. Sort of like a Stephen Tardick Presents... Right. Sort of thing. Well, Marilyn always, Manson, the musical, that no, sort of thing. Uh, count, count the days. It's coming. <laughs> there's a lead producer. They're the ones who or- orchestrate everything. Then there's above the title producers. Those are the ones who are raising this money. Some of them just write their check for $500,000. Others bundle investors. Right. Essentially um, creating like a fund. Exactly. And if a show goes to the Tony Awards and wins a Tony Award for Best Musical, all of the above the title producers are now Tony Award winners. Do they all get to go on stage? Uh, they often do. <laughs> I believe the Tonys recently has started to say we only want the lead producers on stage, but every year it's that right. swarm of people, and rightfully so. They've made a huge emotional and uh, financial investment in these shows, and now they're celebrating it. It sounds like they're fairly involved. Yeah. You know, the people that are putting money into these shows, I'm sure not everyone as a rule, but but... I'm just trying to compare it to like tech investing, which so the, generally is, yeah. is much more hands off. Um, this sort of seems like because there's, you know, from the moment someone invests to the moment that that show actually goes on stage, what, what period of time is that usually? 
Uh, it's it could be years, years wow. and so years. It could, I was gonna so, I was gonna say maybe it's a short amount of time, so everyone sort of rallies, but it, I guess not necessarily. It, it, so the case. there are there are shows batting around now that won't come to Broadway for three or four years that are doing workshops and readings. Any you can tell us about? <laughs> well, these top secret. It, it, one of the fun things about this industry is that um, because so many people work in it, you you have to try to keep your secrets, but there's also a lot of publicly available information. So you'll see that shows announce that they're in the works. Uh, one example is Tootsie. So Tootsie is being, the classic film is being made into a musical, and there have been many readings of the show as they workshop it. Um, I don't know when that show will come to Broadway, if it will come to Broadway, but certainly that's a show in development. So when um, do you get into the process with a show? I don't, not to see in particular necessarily, but, but like at what point, so, so the producer sort of putting everything together, mm-hmm. that includes the marketing and advertising yes. agencies. So when is that? Is it right from the beginning? Is it close to when they're ready to actually, like if the process takes two years, right. are you in at the beginning of the two years or towards the end of the two years where they're actually ready to start, you know, making the public aware? Like, and, and what does that process look like? Do they go and evaluate all the different agencies? I would imagine that there's not that many agencies that specialize mm-hmm. in it Broadway. Is a niche, it is a niche industry. So we tend to get involved in shows at the moment that the shows are transitioning from development works in progress to a product that is going to be seen by paying audiences. Uh, This can sometimes still happen years before a show makes it to Broadway. Hmm. So oftentimes a a show is developed in uh, rehearsal rooms. You know, it's uh, the playwrights and the uh, musicians all getting together uh, and putting on the show in their sweatpants at readings and workshops and development labs. At a certain point, it's time to put that show in front of an audience because a show can be spectacular in a rehearsal room, but then it gets in front of an audience and it it's a totally different show. So uh, oftentimes producers will set up uh, essentially test flights, if you will, uh, the, the beta test mm-hmm. <laughs> of a show. And sometimes that's an off-Broadway run where they partner with a theater in town and do a smaller production. Frequently, they'll go out of town. So they'll go to Chicago or Seattle or Boston, and they'll put their show up there to a non-New York audience and see how it is, and then they'll continue to develop it. So we often are, oftentimes we're pulled into the process leading up to those out-of-town tryouts or those off-Broadway engagements when the, when the clients have a sense that this might really have Broadway potential, uh, we, you know, they really believe in it, and they need to start building a brand for it. But every show is different. I've also, on the flip side, I've, I've worked on shows where we're notified, we're working on it, three months before it comes to Broadway and it's a slapdash sprint to wow. get things up and running. So it, it, it varies. What's the circumstance? It's not like that producer didn't know. <laughs> Sometimes that is the case. So more and more frequently, uh, casting becomes a huge piece of, uh, when shows move forward and theater availability. I mean, there are 41 Broadway houses and they are full and not only are they full, there is a backlog of shows. And there's no, if you want to be on Broadway, it's one of those 41. You're in one of those 41. So how does that happen? Basically, a show fails, and then it opens up, or just like eventually 
teeters out. Like Yeah, what? every show, because of that ongoing cost, there comes a point where it it's more expensive for a show to keep running than it is for it to close. And that's always a tough moment. So Sometimes it happens. If you're a yeah. producer, sorry, like you basically are rooting for some show to fail so you can get in. <laughs> It is a dark way of putting it, but there is that moment where you can't bring your show to Broadway until another show leaves. And it's, as you can imagine, it is uh, the theater owners. There's three, now there's four theater owners on Broadway, and they want to put shows in their theaters that are going to keep the theaters open and they're going to keep the lights on and get as many people in as possible. The, uh, so they're very selective about what shows they offer you, uh, what shows they offer theaters to. If they think you have a big hit, they want to scoop you up. If they are unsure of whether your show is going to be a hit or not, if it's a riskier show, uh, you might not have as much choice in what house you're going in or when you're opening. Wow. So imagine building a $15 million business, but the parameters were you won't know when you actually get to start working. You have to be ready at any moment, but you might need to like keep people sitting around for years before but, it but actually also, happens. The theater owners have no obligation, right? There's no guarantee you could you would ever get into a Broadway theater necessarily, right? Is there like a wait list? Is there a guarantee? You know, this is a part of the business that I don't know. Yeah, I don't have the I'm full so picture of. It'd be like if you were making an app and then Apple was like yeah, great. Spend a few million dollars on this app, um, submit it to us, and if we decide to to approve it and put it on the app store, we will. If not, we won't, and we won't tell you when that's going to happen either. We way. might get back to you. Yeah, it's yeah. like well, who would who would go <laughs> down that road? Uh, the theater owners. Uh, one thing I do know is they will oftentimes start to uh, waitlist shows. Essentially, right. so right. I would say, imagine there's you're a on deck. Yeah, you're on deck for the Imperial Theater. So when whenever this show closes, just know that three months later you can have it. Um, it also what this does is it rewards. Um, relationships, as you can imagine. It rewards longevity in the industry, um, by which I mean that if you show up and knock on the theater owner's doors and say, hey, you've never heard of me before. I just moved into town, but I have this musical and trust me, I have $5 million. I can make it happen. They're a lot less likely to give you a house. Whereas if you've produced shows before, uh, if you've been an investor in other shows, if you can show that you have credibility, you probably, I would assume, uh, move higher on the list. And because of that, it's a very tight knit industry. Everybody knows everyone. And it, um, which I think is, uh, frankly, uh, even though, as you can imagine, it might bring drama and politics occasionally, it also just forces everyone to, you know, act uh, in ways that are long-term well for their, you know, Right, you don't want to burn bridges because you have to hang out with these people for your whole career. Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, so tell me about your, your latest venture, um, because... I don't know if you think of it this way, but you know, essentially, you are part of a new Broadway startup, um, <laughs> and uh, I wonder how how much it is like a tech startup in a lot of ways. You yeah, know, it's uh, so I work now at RPM. We are the newest Broadway ad agency. We launched. Uh, 
unofficially in March of this year and officially last week. Yeah, I just got the LinkedIn <laughs> we, notice last yes, week. Yes, it's real now. We we finally uh, lifted the, the... Really what happened was we started working on this agency uh, so quickly and all of a sudden we had clients uh, that we needed to service, so we never got around to right, you're doing, <laughs> building our you're, you're own doing website. The, the marketing for them, and not logo. for yourself. Exactly. Yeah. So just last week we uh, formally unveiled... And Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, the agency was created by three managing partners who all have um, extensive uh, backgrounds in the theater marketing, marketing industry. Uh, two of them came from Spotco, the old agency that I used to work at, and formed this, uh, this new shop. I've joined on as the uh, executive creative director. And we are in total startup mode. It is, uh, it is as scrappy as you could imagine. Uh, every day we are figuring out new things and processes and really building uh, an entire full-fledged company from scratch. Uh, what's amazing is how quickly it scaled up. We were, there were five of us uh, in March when uh, we really sat down to get this thing going, uh, and now we're at nearly twenty employees. And it's incredible. About to grow even more. So it's. And so, yeah. what are some of the shows you're working on right now? Right now, we have five clients. We are working on Chicago and Waitress the Musical. Uh, we work on Hamilton, and a nonprofit theater called Second Stage, uh, which has been off Broadway, but they're moving on Broadway this year. And we uh, do media buying for American Ballet Theater, the nation's uh, dance. So, yeah, dance just some program. small, <laughs> you know, sort of non-noteworthy clients just to get off the ground, you know, work out the kinks. <laughs> we right, we it's it's a small but mighty lineup. Yeah, and let's just you know let's make sure everything works before we. Oh wait a minute, it's Hamilton. So no, Hamilton. <laughs> let's just do it right the first time. Uh, it's yeah, it's we are very lucky that uh, producers have. Uh, decided to um, give our model a whirl. We, we have a different business model than the other uh, ad agencies, and uh, we're yeah we're really proud of it, and we're uh, proud of our process, and yeah, just trying to uh, build a model for 2017. I mean, I think y- you see this all the time in the tech world. Uh, it's uh, it's it, progress happens, and. Uh, you know, it's it can be difficult to realign with so many different moving parts, and of course, the bigger any company gets, um, the more challenging it is to keep it moving forward. And it's been really uh, refreshing to be in a small lean company as we try to solve the problems of the day. Yeah, it must be refreshing to go from working on these big shows at a bigger agency to working on these big shows at a five-person mm-hmm. agency, now 20. But still, by comparison, um, I would imagine that you know the, the, there's a lot more, I don't know what the word is, I was going to say leeway, but, but it's not necessarily what I mean. But in other words, as far as thinking about being creative, which mm-hmm. is your job, because there are no processes and there's no precedent and there's no sort of you know, oh, well, we tried that last year and it didn't work. Like, there's none of that. There was no last year, you know. (laughs) Um, And so it must be very liberating to sort of just be like, look, this is a blank slate and a new approach. And like the reason that a client would come to you is obviously because they're looking for something new 
Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. I would imagine it's an industry that doesn't get a lot of new hmm. players very often. It isn't often that a new a new shop like this opens up. I mean, the thing that's been very uh, surprising and refreshing uh, that I've experienced, and I'm sure that you see this in your role too, is that as you move from somebody who is on the ground and executing things into a management role where you're overseeing teams of people who execute things, uh, the, <laughs> the process starts to shift a bit. And one of the things that happens when you have uh, a lot of people involved in the execution of something, when there's the person on the ground and then there's a manager and then there's a senior manager and then an executive director, uh, is that the, the process, you know, we talked about like that true creativity when it, like a brilliant idea pops up. When you start funneling that through a lot of different people who have their own unique brilliance approaches is that ideas start to shift. And so it, it becomes that horse by committee is a mule. Uh, that happens on a daily level with creative ideas. And sometimes that collaborative process makes things better. But other times you start to realize that it actually adds friction where friction isn't needed. And so being in a smaller company, we'll sit down and say, okay, we need to we need to make some noise for waitress this week. Uh, it's just, we're looking at the stats and on social, it's just a little quieter than normal. There aren't as many New Yorkers in town. We haven't had any huge news in the last three weeks. We need to make a moment. What should we do? Let's start brainstorming some video ideas that we can quickly make and drop into the mix. <laughs> Instead of one person writing a video treatment and then sending it to someone else to look over, get feedback, and then rewrite it, and then send it one level higher, and uh, maybe this should be shot with a different person. I think we need a voiceover, not on-screen titles. It goes back down, it's re-edited, it goes back up. <laughs> I sit down and write a video idea and send it to the client and see what they say. And <laughs> it's been refreshing to get my hands dirty a bit, and it's also been a really really invaluable reminder that I don't want to be the person who is taking ideas, that, that raw idea, and making it my own idea. It's really um, reset my thinking on allowing people's burst of inspiration to maintain its lifeblood and to question whether feedback that I'm providing is... Uh, being done in the effort to make it to make a piece the way I want it made versus actually making it better. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I mean, if you are the head of creative and someone is hiring this agency to do creative work, on one hand, ultimately they want your brain. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what they're here for. Um, but then, right, if, if your ideas just sort of override the ideas of others on the team all the time, then what's the motivation for them to ever come up with ideas? Right. You know, yeah. so you sort of have to let those, those fly. Um, I liked what you said about just sort of that, that lifeblood or that, you know, that moment of inspiration. It really is a terrible thing when you shoot someone down in that moment. 
you know. Um, and part of it becomes, and this is something we've really <laughs> put a lot of focus on, how one gives feedback on concepts and on creative work is so important. And not just how, but why. And so things like saying, <laughs> I don't like this. I don't think this is good enough. Um, I, I would do something differently. We really try to stay away from things that feel um, too personal or that um, don't loop back to a strategy or an intention. So there are times where I might get a, let's say an edit of a TV commercial and it doesn't sit right with me. I, what I don't say is that's bad or I want you to change this. Um, what I do say to the editors is that I had X reaction or this particular thing evoked this reaction, this, uh, this triggered something to me because of X, Y, or Z. And what that's, <laughs> what that's forced us all to do is to have conversations that truly loop back to the goals of a client. So there are times where I might see something for waitress that feels too dark for the show. And the conversation we have is the, the brand guideline for this show involves finding a tenderness and a sweetness, and we don't want to shy away from the uh, complex and sometimes dark issues that the show deals with, but it all has to redeem itself in the end. It all has to have a payoff that is emotionally rewarding, and this particular spot is lacking that payoff, or I'm not feeling that payoff. And sometimes in that back and forth conversation, uh, we find it's really that the the editor in this case, or the writer, has the chance to discover or bring a brand new idea to the table to solve that very specific strategic... Yeah. Does that interesting. make sense? Yeah, I mean, well, it sounds like a few things. One is is being more detailed in your feedback. So it's not just like, I don't like it. It's like, okay, like, I like a lot of it, but here... But also, uh, I noticed in the way that you sort of phrased the before and after that you took I and me out of it. It was more like, you know, um, the video evoked this reaction in me, which which seems just like sort of a, a word game, but <laughs> in other words, that seems that's like an objective fact. Like that just happened. And it made me feel right. You know, sad at the end instead of happy. Isn't like somehow it seems like that. It's not your opinion. It's just like that is is a fact about the world, and and maybe that's easier to take then then you know sort of like well just because steven doesn't like it you know and that's where it really becomes about picking your battles there are many colors in the palettes that we work with and there are times that a designer might choose a color that i wouldn't choose i am not going to waste my time or our designer's time uh nitpicking over whether I think a color is the color I would choose. What's a color that you hate? <laughs> Brown. Um, but <laughs> there are times where I do say, the color choice that you've made here uh, is making this text illegible. I'm having a hard time reading this yeah, text. Yeah, yeah. That's the difference between saying, I, I don't like it, versus you have a problem that needs to be solved creatively. Right. And 
there are five different solutions to it. You pick the one that you like. Yeah, there's something, there's more of a justification or, or at least something more actionable. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Of, it's, it's interesting thinking about, um, I don't know. So I, I've been spending a lot of time lately thinking about um, AI and machine mm-hmm. learning and machine vision or computer vision, whatever the right term is, like, and how that could potentially impact creative work over time. Probably not in the next year or two, but like when you think yeah. out, you know, um, in terms of decades, where, you know, could you start just saying like, you know what, um, the text is illegible and the, the design software adds a drop shadow. And then you're like, no, I don't like the shadow. And then it, it changes it to be a different Here color are five text. five options for increased legibility. Yeah, or based on your previous answers or preferences, it knows that what you really mean is that the font needs to be thicker. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, <laughs> and, and you don't even need another person because a right. lot of that feedback loop, is, the inspiration of creativity is real. And I like to imagine that that's a human thing. I'm sure I will be proven wrong, but hopefully it'll <laughs> be after I'm dead. Um, <laughs> the, the, so let's just assume that that's still human. But a lot of the feedback, a lot of the tinkering and iteration in creative work is actually quite um, automatable in a way. In other words, Move it, you know, five pixels to the left. No, try it right. Uh, try it justified center. No, try it right. Okay, try it at the bottom. No, try it at the top. Try it black and white. No, actually white and black. Like, you know what I mean? Um, and if you're doing the work yourself, every idea that you have takes a certain amount of effort and time to, to see if your theory was right. Mm-hmm. And if you're working with another human being as an intermediary, mm-hmm. it could take days. You're giving that feedback to the editor. You might not get another cut for a couple of days, only to find out that no, you were wrong. Well, I think with this, you're hitting on something that is uh, quite profound, and it also it, personally it articulates the part of the creative process that I'm interested in, and the part that I don't think is the best use of my personal time, uh, which is really that concept of really pr- like production versus creativity, you know, yeah. actually creation. Production's really important. However, I agree with you, like long term, there's a real question to ask about how much production work uh, will or won't be automated in the future. Because all of those scenarios of the layout of something, yes. uh, there, yeah, there is likely going to be right. more or and the more cut of a video or the, you know, mixing of audio or, you know, try without the drums. Okay, actually, bring bring the drums back in. Actually, take the drums out, but leave the shaker. Like, well, look at the memories feature on our phones. Do you ever use yes, the photos yes. memories? I've started crying at a machine learning based <laughs> like mashup montage video of photos that the, the system times, knows which photos I look at. Yeah, the, the, from the pacing to the music and the synchronization of all of that, like it's it's hitting clear emotional triggers. Um, but I think that's actually a key point. The more we can focus away from the execution details and more on the core ideas yes. that we're trying to hit, the more 
we're bringing something new and fresh and unexpected to the table. And so uh, I, I welcome that level of automation on the production side. Uh, it's the ideation that you could never probably Yeah, when you're recreate. kicking around an idea and you're, and you're, you know, sort of see it evolve. And it's funny because I think a lot of artists, of course, would be horrified to hear this, this <laughs> take, you know. Um, and I think sort of historically the, the production and the idea are one and the same insofar as that you sort of explore as you produce and the idea you thought you had ends up differently because of the materials you're using or because of the some other sorts of constraints or, you know what I mean? I had, um, I had a design teacher in college who was, he was one of those teachers, those like super rough teachers who would just give it to you totally straight. Yeah. And you would walk in, there would always be an assignment. The kind of feedback you're trying to avoid. Right. Well, well, this was, he was so direct and to the point, which I really appreciated. You bring in a design and there'd be a very specific design challenge. Uh, you know, create an ad for this, make an album cover, do this. And you'd put it on the board. And the first thing he would say is either, <laughs> uh, his, his, the most common dismissal he would use is, that's not design, that's layout. And he'd say, no, it's, what it's beautiful. It's beautiful. And he would say, that is layout. What you've done is you've taken objects and you've put them on a piece of paper in an aesthetically pleasing manner. That's not called design. That's called layout. Design is the merging of ideas visually. It's the visual merging of ideas uh, in something that tells a new story. And so where is the storytelling in this piece? And you'd say, well, but the, the juxtaposition, no, that's layout. And he would really push us to create something new out of the blending of two concepts. And to this day, I think about that all the time. Wow. Sometimes layout can be super effective and can get you very far. Layout is certainly the sort of thing that over time, uh, machine learning will help solve problems for quicker and faster and cheaper. But man, oh man, design, that can never be done by a computer. The idea of a computer that knows everything and that has an unlimited perspective automatically means that the automated design would be terrible. It's all of the weird, unique cross paths that we have, uh, that we see every day. You know, the fact that I walk to work down a certain block influences the design ideas and the creative ideas that pop through my mind. And I think that's uh, that unique existence is, is what fuels all of this. I'm like going back through every design I've ever done to evaluate whether <laughs> layout design, it's a layout, layout or design. design. Like, oh, it was so shit. useful. I think there's a lot of layout. <laughs> <laughs> hey, layout can be very effective. Um, so <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. And so I, as an executive creative director, try to focus on the ideas and uh, there are, and honestly, there are often times that somebody presents something to me and I don't get it. And when we actually talk through what the idea is, or I have a, I have a reaction I didn't even expect. It may not even be that I'm like, what's that? But I'm like, oh, that that's striking me in a way that's like catching me off guard. Uh, and oftentimes when you talk through that idea, you ultimately realize like, whoa, that reaction I had is exactly the right one. And there's so much thought put towards this. The fact that it took me three views for it to like truly uh, intellectually process, like, wow, like, no, you've totally won me over. That one's staying. So I like that. 
There's a couple of other techie topics that I was hoping to hit because um, I think you're someone that might fight me on this, which is what I'm (laughs) looking for. So not to put words in your mouth in advance, but thinking about virtual reality and again, some of these cutting edge technologies that I spend a lot of time thinking about live performances, which I would group not only theater, but music, sporting events, any sort of live event, um, a speech given by a politician, anything that typically um, or traditionally throughout human history, you have to be there to really get the experience. VR of today, obviously not going to cut it, but the path is fairly straightforward to the concept where you could, in the comfort of your own home, put on a headset, some headphones, maybe even other sorts of sensory input, whatever it may end up being, and be transported into the audience of a show. I think that there is a scenario there where it really becomes indistinguishable from being there. Um, And yet some part of my biology still wants to believe that (laughs) actually going to a show would be unique. Um, And, and, a sort of second part to this question or line of thinking is even with the technology available today, 360 video, um, 360 audio, like, you know, do you ever think about how a show could extend its reach well beyond those 41 theaters mm-hmm. um, and give a larger group of people really an immersive experience that I do not think you can capture by putting it on video and throwing it on Netflix but this feels different, you know? Oh, totally. I just got a virtual reality headset a month ago. And the first first time I put it on, started playing, I took it off 20 minutes later. And I thought, holy shit, <laughs> my industry is about to change big time. <laughs> I mean, it is, it, to your point, the current technology is not there. It has flaws left and right. And it's, uh, there are moments, there are a lot of problems that need to be solved with VR tech from the obnoxious wires to the low uh, clarity in the, in the actual screens uh, to even just the uh, effect of vertigo or nausea that you get sometimes because of uh, thoughtless design of the experiences. All that said, it is the most jaw-dropping, magical uh experience I've had related to tech in a decade. I, mu- <laughs> I love when you say something that sounds remotely like Siri and she pops up. So I, I, was, uh, I was doing a deep sea dive in, with this headset on and was just a game. I, I started crying. It was like an emotional experience to have this turtle swim up to me. And yeah, I do think it's going to have a profound impact in, uh, in how we experience storytelling. What I will say, though, is that going to the theater is about more than even just the experience of sitting in a room with strangers. The entire event of having a show to go to in two weeks and getting a little bit dressed up and spending money on this stuff. I mean, there's something about the fact that going to a theater is for most people a luxury experience. It's something special. And 
walking down the street and seeing all those lights and bumping into people holding playbills, maybe all of this will be perfectly recreated. I would be disappointed if VR just remade the experiences we have in the real world. To me, it's so much more interesting to consider what they can do beyond that. It would be weird to put on a headset and feel like you're sitting in a cramped small theater, <laughs> but who knows? I but like imagine for someone that can't afford those tickets uh-huh. or doesn't live anywhere near New York and now they could sit front row center. Yeah, it's a gateway. It's a gateway. I mean, you mentioned the filming of shows. There's a new service called Broadway HD, which sets out to capture as many Broadway shows as possible and make them available for streaming. I mean, those things are incredible for people who can't make it. And certainly VR gives the potential of increasing that experience a hundredfold. I mean, it is so um, mind-bending when you're in those immersive experiences. You for, you truly forget where you are. I mean, uh, you might have had this with the Oculus. You take your headset off, and it, it like takes you a half hour or an hour just to get used get to nauseous. being in the world. I, I mean, I got nauseous playing GoldenEye on Nintendo yeah. 64, so I have a pretty weak stomach slash brain. Um, we had this intern who we were all just sitting around as like sort of a quiet moment in the office and we just hear this blood curdling scream <laughs> and we all turn around he was in a haunted house yes <laughs> in oculus yes in like the middle of the day and he wasn't even really aware because that was followed by a few other screams mm-hmm. and everyone else in the office is just like looking at each other like should we like save him <laughs> should we like tap him on the shoulder tell him to shut up like What's He's having a great time. Yeah, exactly. Or a terrible time. I don't know. There's this game um, called Super Hot. Have you played this? No. It's the best VR game. You, so the, the conceit, the, the mechanic of the game is that the world around you only moves when you move. So if you stand perfectly still, all the other people in the world stand perfectly still. But as you move, the speed you move kind of hits play at the speed that you're moving Weird. at. Yeah. And so you are, the game is a VR game within a VR game. So you are in this simulation where there are people coming at you with weapons and you need to perfectly orchestrate the um, disarming of each of them and like the shattering of them. They're kind of made of red glass. It's bizarre. Um, but it makes you feel like an action hero star like every time you enter one of these scenes you have to know to punch this guy in just the right way so you can grab his gun but dodge a bullet someone's shooting at you and the speed has to be right to it has do to be things. just right because if you're off by an inch you get punched and you shatter and after playing this game you go into the real world and everything's moving unrelated to how you're moving and your brain melts it takes an hour to get used to the fact that when someone else is moving you don't have to continuously move at the same speed it's bizarre but it's so um it's just it's such a unique experience and yeah it's just getting started i cannot wait to see what storytellers do with this stuff well, in there's um, a few years so uh, i had this guy on sean cheng who's a vc and he was telling me about this company. I forget the name now. I need to uh, go back and tell you. But basically, it's like um, it's a game where you act out different roles in a scene. You basically create your own movie. So what you do is you um, move around and use your voice um, and presumably gestures. I don't know exactly how it works um, to sort of capture the performance mm-hmm. of a character. And then uh, you press stop and rewind and 
you play back that character, which is now played by an avatar oh, with your cool. voice, and you can choose how it looks and whatever, and now you play a second character, and, and you interact with the first character, and then you add a third character, and, and whatever, and basically you create your own movie, your own, <laughs> your own scene, um, by playing all the different characters, and you can change the costumes and the lighting and right. the scenery and the whole thing. You would love it. I need I mean, to find this, the name of this immediately. My the first computer we ever had, it was a Windows three point two. I mean, some Pentium yeah, that yeah. you know the. Uh, it's just, our our computers are probably literally ten thousand times faster. There was a program I had this Warner Brothers program that allowed you to take cartoon characters and create little pop ups and like make your own Warner Brothers Looney Tunes cartoons. And you just think that people born today are going to literally be able to make Hobbit level. Films, uh, yeah. just sitting in their living room. I, I, I mean, the the unbridled creativity that this uh, this unleashes is just beyond. It's such. Uh, yeah, there's so many naysayers uh, when it comes to all of these tech innovations and what it means that we're all staring at our phones. And I do think that there's some readjustment that needs to happen as far as where our attention is going in times and when it goes to those directions. But man, oh man, it's just. I have such optimism for how all of this is going to pan out and what we're going to see from it. It's yeah. to me, it's so exciting. It's funny, right? That anyone could basically create the Hobbit or or anything. I mean, that's where it goes, right? Because everything becomes democratized in that way. Have you ever like sat with a an eight year old and watched them play Minecraft? No. I mean, Minecraft is. I knew this would happen. I knew this would happen at some point in my life. I knew there would be this big tech happening, this big movement that I would miss the boat on and that I would be that guy sitting on the sideline being like, what are these kids doing with their, you know, their YouTubes? Uh, Minecraft was that thing. I just, I didn't get it. I saw it happen. I saw that other people liked it, but I just chose not to experience it. But you sit down with a nine-year-old and watch them show you their Minecraft world it is Legos on crack. They have built their house and they have the... Se- I was just with uh, Billy's uh, niece and she was showing me the secret room she made for her pet pig and how she goes in there every day and she gives the pig bacon. She thought that was the funniest thing. And then she Tamagotchi. closes the room. Right. We had these 16 by 16 pixel keychains uh, that pooped and you know were fed little <laughs> pellets and then they died and... And these folks are like making whole worlds and inviting each other. And I saw someone created a server farm in Minecraft that runs Minecraft. I mean, this is <laughs> this is where we're at. It's, and I say this with such positivity that wow, that, that you you create something that I mean, it's an ugly looking game. It's as arbitrary and basic as it can get, and yet. Just what the things you see, right? People remaking films and right. cr- yeah, creating programs out of blocks, right? And ultimately, it's it's things that you couldn't do. And the if you take that and you take all these other technologies we're talking about, I mean, in the end, you can just create a whole world mm-hmm. for yourself. Any yeah, world. and 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 it doesn't look like crap. And, and everyone takes this to a very dystopian real. place. No, right? But, I don't mean it in a dystopian way necessarily, but yeah, I am so ready 
for five years from now to put on my virtual reality headset, you know, the Oculus 8, and to sit under a heat lamp and be on vacation. Because it's, I mean, already with our crappy headsets, you go to those deep sea diving places, you take it off and all of a sudden you're zen again. Like there, there's a real plus side to this. And I, I trust that we as a species will find the right sweet spot here that, uh, you know, that will, that will, will ride the line and land on a place that logically makes sense. And I don't think we're here, for instance, with like phones and mobile tech. I think we've gone too far. I think there's an adjustment that has to happen from, uh, you know, the amount of time we all spend staring at our phones. It brings us back to where we started and you deleting Twitter. It's clear that this is not a healthy place that we're all living day to day. And I truly believe we're going to course correct. I truly do. I think if I, I would wager that 10 years from now, we are spending less time staring at screens than we do today. And I heard someone say it's like the organic food movement. Like that's we, interesting. Like, like as Americans in general, used to eat a lot more junk food and mm-hmm. didn't care as much. And then there sort of became this movement, which of course was hijacked by the big brands in their marketing and whatever, um, but the net result is still positive, which is being healthier, right? You and, know, and and, and 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 if we start to see our tech in the same way as like junk food, then we're creating healthier habits. You know, we, we both wear Apple watches, yeah. And at first, I think the concern was. Jesus, another screen to annoy me. But the truth is that now that I've configured my Apple Watch and my notifications in the right way, it actually means I don't have to look at my phone as much because if somebody really needs to get a hold of me, I know I will get that little tap on my wrist. I only have three apps with notifications on in my whole phone. Which ones? Messages. Yep. Phone. And direct messages on Slack. Yeah, that's, 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 those are the only things that need to interrupt you. Twitter does not need to interrupt you. No. And Facebook certainly doesn't. Email doesn't yeah. need to interrupt you. Oh yeah. I um, turned off email notifications years ago and haven't looked back. Right, sometimes I see people's phones. It's just like, boom, 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 like, like their whole day. Oh, and I, I'm like, how can you even deal with that? How can, how can you, you function? Manage. The, I, that's how like how my many nightmare. emails do you get per day? A lot. I don't know. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Uh, too many. Is it, is it in the the dozens, the hundreds? No, the I would ten? say that I would say the dozens. Mm-hmm. I used to get a lot more. Well, so first of all, email was outlawed at Maz about two years ago. Um, as far as internal emails, there are zero internal emails, which cuts down dramatically. I mean, literally none. I mean, none. It's against the rules. Like if you send an email, I forward it to the whole team and like publicly shame wow. you. Done. I just couldn't deal with it. Um, and there's a combination of Slack and Asana, which is like task management yep. software. Um, well, GitHub sometimes. like We have different systems. And it's not perfect. And, yeah. and sometimes it's more cumbersome than it needs to be. Um, I also really try to promote in-person conversations Go as much figure. as possible. Uh, but, but, um, so that's a big one. I but, have a question on this, though. Yeah. How much of this is rearranging deck chairs? Like, Well, so... Some some of it. One thing that I found though is that there's a lot less reply all mm-hmm. situation when you move into a chat based environment. Um, and I also encourage the 
non-guilty leaving of group chats. So, uh, so in other words, if you're in a thread with six people and they've been going back and forth for 20 minutes yep. and you literally aren't part of the conversation, you just say, I'm going to bow out. Just like at reply me if you need me to pop back into this that conversation. Makes sense. So there's a lot of that. And I personally remove myself from all sorts of stuff. Um, but then again, I'll come back in, I'll leave, I'll come back in. So I'm like sort of in and out a lot. Um, but there's a couple of other reasons. One is that I use this service called Clara for all my scheduling. Mm-hmm. Um, she's like, I call it like AI-ish. Uh, the other person doesn't know that it's a service. Clara at MazDigital.com. Um, Clara Levy, she has a little like picture. It seems like a real person. So as soon as they get in the point of conversation where it's like, great, let's set up that coffee. I CC Clara. And I say, I've added Clara. She'll find us a time. She then does her thing without me on those threads. So you could have two, three, sometimes 10 back and forths. That meeting might get canceled, postponed. I don't even know about it. It's really like having an assistant. <laughs> um, and so there are actually hundreds of emails per month that Clara is happening with my contacts that I don't know about. Wow. I can log into Clara's account and see them if I want. Um, That's so bizarre. So that has saved me uh, an insane amount of time. Um, it's what I imagine having a real system would be like if I could afford a real one, but my virtual <laughs> one is great. Um, and the other thing is that right now I'm just not, I'm not fundraising. I'm not doing a lot of the stuff. Like when I'm in those heavy moments, it could, it could easily be, you know, 200 plus a day yeah, in the back and forth. Um, I've had moments like that, but now I'm in a relatively sustainable email place i should add in my work email my personal email is a fucking nightmare (laughs) yeah you know what about you i um i'm a big systems person and so i try to do inbox zero and like any good system it you know works 20 percent of the time and then i feel guilty 80 percent of the time when it doesn't um i probably get I mean, I work in client services, so there is that constant influx. I probably get 200 emails a day. We have shifted to Slack, which has been a huge help. And the biggest thing, I love it with Slack, are the reactions that you can just give a thumbs up and don't have to write a whole email and CC 18 people. I think that was the most genius innovation of that service. Um, But I get about 200. And... I re- my rule is that if Sunday morning my inbox isn't empty, then like before before Billy's up, after I walk the dog, I have my cup of coffee, I leave the apartment, and I get it down to zero. Because what I've noticed, and I think this is probably universal, it's the crud. It's the ones that stick around all week that uh. I just don't want to deal with. I hate the crud. And when you when you really apply, I'm a big advocate of the getting things done system by David Allen. It's like every email, there's like three things you can do to it. You know, there's an instant reaction uh, reply to, you know, the two minute rule, like take action, get it out of the way. Uh, you can delegate it or you can file it away. Like they're really, what, what else is there to do? And the likely a scenario is that if you can't figure out like which of or you can delete it of course it's like if you can't figure out which of those things to do you're 
you're approaching it the wrong way. And one of the things Slack does well is it helps remove ambiguity because you don't have 18 people CC'd. Like, what does a CC even mean at this point? Yeah. It's like, am I supposed to pay attention? Am I sp- Someone's asking an ambiguous question to 20 people. Uh, and then you're sitting there and you're like, do I reply? Is someone else going to reply? You know what? I'll archive it. Someone else will reply. I don't need to worry about this. Right. And when you start to set these guidelines up, other people start to notice too. So anytime there's ambiguity, I try, and I'm not perfect at it by any stretch, you try to hop in and say, you know, at Lisa, are you, uh, do you have this covered? Do you need anything? Let me know if you need anything. Uh, And all of a sudden over time, people just start to develop better habits for this stuff. Stop sending unambiguous, uh, you know, crud into the world without next steps. And, right. You know. we, we've been trying to separate, and again, it's a work in progress, like actions from conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, actions are are things that can be marked as done yep. and can be assigned to individual people. So we use this, this task management software called Asana. So um, we might be having a conversation on Slack. And it, if I'm like, hey, like, can you look into that for me tomorrow? The expectation is then if you're like, yeah, great, Asana it to me. Mm-hmm. What I'll do is I'll, in the task management piece, be like, look into this for Paul. The due date is end of day tomorrow. Assign it to Stephen. And the rule is that it has to be assigned to someone. So as soon as you're done with it, you would assign it back to me to That's check. That's the pass off. Exactly. Yep. Like, so, so someone specific is responsible. It's, it's an attempt at, at, at not having the scenario you're talking about where whether it's an email or a Slack thread or something, when multiple people are on it, it's actually the least likely to get done. Right. Because everyone thinks that someone, someone else, else is, is going to take it. Yep. So, I, and, and in general, even in in-person things, I've really tried to make a habit of being like, great, person X, you are responsible for making this happen. You know, obviously recruit the help of others if you need it, but like someone is actually responsible because uh, multiple people being responsible, I found is almost like nobody being responsible. Yep. Um, the waiting for list, like that's another GTD thing that's become epic for me. So if I am delegating something, if I am passing it, I BCC OmniFocus, the program I use for yep. task management, and I keep this list of just things I'm waiting for. And I don't look at it every day. I look at it maybe three times a week. Um, and usually when I look at it, most of the stuff is done. And it's yeah, like, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, I did finish that a week ago. But that's the moment that I have that secondary right, leaving check. Leaving that in your inbox is just like death. It's the worst. Yeah. And this, you know, there's, did you ever watch Merlin Mann's Inbox Zero video? No. It's become this legendary video. He did a talk at Google. I'm like and, picturing it as like a like a Super Mario speed round for oh my email or something. It, it's it's a really profound hour long conversation about how to use email in a healthy way. And his big takeaway is that email is a, a task you should do. It's not a pervasive um, interruption that you should allow to creep into your whole life. Mm -hmm. So he says, sit down and do email. And every single email, like you reply to it to take action, you delegate it, you forward it to somebody for them to take action, you archive it, or you save it for later. You tuck it away for reference. Like that's it. There's nothing else to do with an email. And the worst thing is to read an email and not do any of those things because all of a sudden, 
new inputs are coming into the same place where you have all of this old stuff. And so that's when email becomes unyieldy is like, Every time you go into this box, you have to be reminded of this failure pile that's waiting there. Also, that- you're scanning through and doing the mental work of, oh, I already saw that. Oh, I already did that. Oh, I'm waiting to reply Every single that. time. Every time you glance at it. And that's why people who use their email inbox as a to-do list bless them. I am so happy that they have found a system that works for them. But if my to-do list, if anybody could put anything they wanted in my to-do list, I would fall apart. Like my to-do list is that like, that is my time. That's my attention. And for something to get onto my to-do list, like it has been vetted. It is a thing, a very specific task, not a project, a task that I can activate. And I am I become, this is like another one of these things that I've learned over time. If I assign a deadline to something, that thing must get done that day. There is no negotiations on deadlines. Now, I have flags. I have things that are on my high priority list. But the minute a deadline is set, it is non-negotiable. And I realize if I am not ruthless with this to myself, all of a sudden you get that thing where you take today's deadlines and you move them to tomorrow and then you wait and you start to get to a point where every day you're moving you it, move it until someone yells at you or a fire happens because of it and then all of a sudden it's like okay I'll do it I'll do that thing that's been sitting there and so removing the false promise to myself um, actually only having like every day on my to-do list I have maybe two or three things Wow. and I do have a so long list. you pace list. yourself properly. Yeah the, the things that must get done are on my to-do list And then I have separate lists for the things that are high priority that I need to keep an eye on. And I review those lists every day. I find when I have the three things on the list I need to do, I do them instantly. And then I'm actually hungry for the other things to Mm. accomplish. Um, Whereas that moving it every day, moving it every day, uh, it's, it's actually like quite defeating and, um, it, I, I'm not doing it, so it's not working, and it, it's really pulling my attention in a negative way. Yeah, one thing I do like about email is the asynchronous nature of it. That when you send an email or when I receive an email, the expectation is not that I'll respond right now because it's, e- because it's email. <laughs> I know, that is so a, charming, as opposed to a text <laughs> message, for instance, um, where the expectation yes. is. You know, of course, they're equivalent, right? They're both hitting my phone. Everyone knows I have my phone all the time. Yes. So, but but there is some social. That is true. Like, I will say that in client services, uh, there are many people who do not have that same view of email. Of course. And it's interesting to consider, like, how do you how do you manage that? Like, how how do you solve a problem when somebody is using a tool in a way that's asynchronous with how you want to use it right. and um, you know, that's, uh, that's something that wouldn't trigger everyone, but my personality type, I, that's always an issue that I deal with. Yeah. Um, and I tend to be pretty upfront when, uh, about the, the means, if, if somebody is emailing me and then writing back 15 minutes later saying ASAP, where's the response? Um, that just makes me reply less. Oh, it's I, it, that, that well, sort of thing makes me just be like, you know what? I was going to write back, but you're a shithead. And I'm just not going to do it. <laughs> well, like, to your point, uh, I just won't reply via email. I'll reply via text or I'll pick up the phone and call the person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, t- you know, it's, 
it's these like subtle um, right, it's like a means of trying to yeah. like retrain people. It's like, oh, uh, I saw this was urgent, so I'm calling you. Yeah, because yeah. Of well, that's phone. right, exactly. And also, it's something that um, the managing partners at RPM are obsessed with is like the phone is a really useful tool. It's a uh, really useful tool. Ten to six. We love and the phone. I mean, you've got to. Love it's, the phone. It, even like Slack calls internally, but just speaking with somebody clarifies so much so quickly. Yeah, and, and it can save you a lot of the back and forth and the whatever. What about in your personal life? Like when you get a text message, do you reply right away? When you get a call, do you pick up? Like do you create those boundaries for yourself? I am so bad. I, I have all these systems because I am naturally awful at this. Um, I'm somebody who like reads things but wants to think about them before I reply, and then I never right, get then you back to, reply, to it. Yeah. Then I open up my messages, and I get upset at myself. So I try to create systems to avoid these problems, and I succeed 20% of the time. Um, but generally... Um, yeah, I'm terrible with staying in touch with people. This is how bad I am at like <laughs> managing even just like communication with the people I really care about. This this might make this is like pathetic. Let me say this, but it's <laughs> I've realized this is what I have to do. I in my OmniFocus app, which is my to-do app. Yeah. I mentioned I don't have a lot of uh you know, deadlines. Um, but what you can do is you can defer tasks. So you can say, make this task invisible until this day and then make it pop up on my list. That's cool. So I have a list called people I care about. And on that list, like you are on that list and there is a different period of auto deferring. And so I've gone through and said, how often do I want to be in touch with Paul Canetti? And for Paul Canetti, it's three weeks. And so every, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, this is how, this is, uh, this is what I do. So once a week I open up this list and I was like, oh yeah, it's been a month since I've spoken to Susie and I haven't spoken to Paul in three weeks. And so I'll shoot a text and be like, hey, what are you up to this weekend? And then I check it. And then three weeks later, it'll appear again. You're and a there sick isn't, person. I know. But here's the reality. This is why I did this. I was getting frustrated with the fact that Sunday at nine o'clock, 9 p.m. would roll around and I would look back on my week and I'd look back on my weekend and be like, what did I just do? Like, I, I spent time with people. I, you know, I had a lot of work drinks and I, um, you know, had a lot of networking events and Billy and I hung out and, uh, you know, I had quality time. But then I think back, like, it's been six months since I've seen Scott. Uh, even since I've like spoken to some of these people who I consider, yeah. I feel like this is a very common New York experience. Yeah, hashtag adulting. But yeah. yeah. And uh, as sad as it might sound that I have a list of people I care about with reminders, I've realized that if I don't do that, I go a year without seeing people I totally. care about. And I'd rather be honest with myself. And this is where it starts to get, <laughs> it starts to get a little ruthless. Um, there are people on that list who are set to six months. It's like, you know what? I'm only going to see right. you twice a year. But it's, it's about the honesty with yourself. I mean, probably you don't broadcast a lot of those, but like, it's also the, I mean, look, you're creating all these things in your work life, you know, call this client, mm -hmm. do this task, make sure you have lunch with so-and-so. And then most people don't do any of that in their personal life. 
you know, even like sending calendar invites to friends or family for a personal event is like, you know, depending on who it is, that might be weird or not weird. Yep. But like you, you do all this organization and you're very purposeful about what you do in your professional life. And then most people are totally not that way with their personal life. So, I mean, if you're going to organize anything, it should be your personal life. It should be your close friends. It should be, you know what I mean? But and you know what? It's, I agree it's, that right. it's weird. Some I mean, people don't need to do this. And I, we both have friends who are just, you know, who text you out of the blue to say, oh, I remembered that you mentioned you had a big pitch coming up. Yes, and like yes. a month later, how'd it go? I, like, I, I, it, it was right. today, right? And, and those people... I, I want to be those people, yeah, but I, I mean, am not those people. Well, I, I, I have just a little bit of a different take. To me, I sort of trust myself or my unconscious or whatever that if there are people I care about, I will remember. Which is also an, it's just it's a different harsh system. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Yeah, um, that's fair. In other words. If I have forgotten to call someone for six months, it's probably because I didn't want to talk to them that bad. You know, <laughs> is and that like, true though? But, but like, it doesn't mean that I don't yeah. like them. Yeah. It doesn't mean that I yeah. never want to speak to them again. Like, for instance, I know Jess sort of thinks about it a lot. Like, oh, I haven't talked to so and so in a couple weeks. I haven't talked to so and so in a couple weeks. And of course, some people I think about it like that. But like, you know, for instance, let's say I don't talk to you for a few weeks. I'm not thinking like, oh my god, I bet Stephen hates me. Of course, or like of course, I bet, right. like oh, I guess this means that I don't like hanging out with him, so I should take this as an indicator. It, it's more like um, I don't know. I just feel like people's lives ebb and flow, including my own. And like when I do think of someone, I, what I try to do is in that exact moment I reach out. Right. So it's not like oh, I haven't talked to so and so in a while. I should really text them, but then mm-hmm. I don't do anything mm-hmm. in that exact moment. You just sort of shoot the text, be like, hey, like, we haven't seen you forever. We should set something up. Like, um, so, so I sort of trust my gut in that way. Right. That, like, you know, you, you'll sort of, if it is important, it'll somehow rear its head, you know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I, I totally get it. And uh, what this um, what this has really made me consider, the thing that triggers it to me is when Somebody pops in my mind. I'm like, you know what? I really wish I had hung out with that person two weeks ago. Yeah. And what I find is as I get older, when I have free time, what I tend to do is more and more often just sort of revert to the thing that's the easiest for me to do. And oftentimes that's hang out at home and play a video game or go with Billy to the park. It just, I think this is a very natural thing that happens over time. And we don't have book every minute. Yeah, of course, of course. But at the same time, like as the um, spontaneity has dropped a little bit, I do have these moments where I think, you know what, I want, there are people I want to keep in my life on a more uh, frequent basis, also because it does impact the quality of the relationship you have with them. Oh, of course. When it's, like, you know. I'm always jealous of like sitcom characters. Like, oh. They're, they're always hanging out. Just hopping in. Yeah. Right. You know. Do people do that? Like, I, no I, one I've ever met. Right. Um, that but, always struck me when I moved to New York. No one hangs out at anyone's apartment. I guess no. it's changed a little bit as we've gotten older. And we yes. Have and the apartments are bigger. Big enough to hang <laughs> into. <laughs> exactly. But, but that always, that, that was always such a bummer for me because there's nothing I love more right, than just, just like going over someone's in. house and just yeah, whatever. Just hang out. And what are we going to do? I don't know. 
know, like that. Yeah. It's like those middle school days, you yes. know, that, yes. that vibe. And th- and those are the most fun. Um, it, it is interesting. I wonder if it's a New York phenomenon. I have nothing to compare it to, but like, again, like people just put so much emphasis on planning their work week mm-hmm. that when the weekend comes, I feel like, like I, I don't want to spend all that energy scheduling it yeah. because I've just done that all week. But then it's like, it's the opposite. Um, and of course now with Layla, you know, it, it's even harder because like, I really do want to spend time with her literally all the time. Mm. And so sometimes I'm at an early morning coffee meeting where I could have spent another hour at home or something. And I'm like, you know what? Like I and even in, in, in the professional sense, like I don't care about this person. This isn't that important. Right. This person wanted to get coffee with me. I was able to push it off six weeks, <laughs> but here I am. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, I personally find it very hard to say no to people. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's all about this. It's the same idea, though, right? It's like, you know, I had these two days of the weekend, and how did I really spend it? Did right. I really spend it in with the people that I most want to spend time with, doing the things that I most want to do? And really, that's how we should spend all of our time, not just the weekends. Um, but it's hard. Yeah. And we, you know, we all sort of approach this in a different way. It's funny you bring up the, the coffee, like the networking coffees. Uh, I had a moment, uh, you know, a month ago where there was a lot going on at work. And one day that week I left to go have a coffee with some, you know, a, a 22 year old's, um, interned at another office who just wanted to, you know, pick my brain, that, that sort of email. Yep. And in the moment, I got very frustrated with myself and I was like, oh, here we go. Yeah, I, you know, this, this multi, uh, client, multi-show client is waiting on an email for me and I'm about to yes. spend 45 minutes. But when I really pulled back, I identified the fact that when I look at my week, I want to take a small portion yes. every single week and dedicate it to talking with people who are just getting started in their career. It's very important to me for 10 different reasons. And I don't want that to become 20% of the time that I spend, Agreed. but I want it to be a million, 5%. A million, million percent. And you realize like sometimes if you don't do these kind of audits and gut checks, you you things can spiral out of control. Yes. And that's I think part of my <laughs> bizarre friend system was realizing that like things had spun out of control in that I just wasn't hanging out with friends as much. And that so I was like, let's try a system to fix that. And this is another example where at this point now what I do, <laughs> I will oftentimes have a recurring calendar event that just says coffee, like mm-hmm. hold coffee. And it's usually on Thursdays at so noon. So funny you say that. This and is so, this is what I do. It's Wednesdays at 930. Yeah. If you rent me and you want coffee. That's the slot because the only reason that I've been able to do anything that I have done in my career is because people had coffee with me. Mm-hmm. You know, hundred percent, and and that's not to say I'm at the end of the road. I still get coffee with other people that I'm sure are like, oh, this guy. You know, so like, it's all relative where you know right. where you are in the trajectory. So it's vital, and of course, I have a blast when I'm yeah, actually there, yeah. and it's so inspiring to hear what people are doing and what they want to do with their careers, and and I I, um, and so it's funny. I have the exact same thing, and and when someone writes in, it just however many Wednesdays out mm-hmm. it is. Is how many it takes, right? But that's fine. That's like, the they're time. G- they're going to get booked. That's the time. Yeah. Um, and so I, I 
I agree with that wholeheartedly. And then I always say, you know, I know it's a few weeks out. I'm sorry. Um, but if you want to just get the ball rolling via email, mm-hmm. let me know. Yeah. Um, bounce some ideas off me, whatever. And nine out of 10 times, there's no email. Right. Which shows me that there's not a specific ask or a specific thing. It really is the pick your brain coffee. Yeah. It's, which is fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But every once in a while, it's the, well, I wanted to get coffee, but what I really want is an intro to so and so. And sometimes you can just cut to the chase and do the coffee later. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it, it really is important. There's a book I want to write, ha, huh, with all my other books that I'll <laughs> probably never write. Um, books, who cares about books? But um, called Thousand Coffees. And I started doing this, and I'd like to chip away at it, of going back through my calendar mm. over the last seven years. Um, and, and I even should go earlier than that into my music career and stuff, but, but just thinking about Maz and plotting on a Google map. I have like a custom Google map. Every place I got a coffee <laughs> with another founder, with an investor, right. with a client, with a somebody. I can take you on a walking tour of Manhattan and tell you, boom, like, I met so-and-so there. Boom. Every Starbucks, every little cafe, every neighborhood. No joke. Um, and that's what it takes, you know? Uh, so I, I do think that's a really important piece. What do you find that you personally get out of those coffee dates? I, I'm inspired to hear what people are working on and what they're passionate about. Um, the sort of open-mindedness and naivete that comes Hmm. with not having done anything yet. Um, uh, And also sometimes those coffees are, are, it's not like that. It's more of a, not commiserating, but like, you know, I I don't know that many other CEOs, for instance. So when I get coffee with a CEO, um, that's like, you know, just being able to meet someone that's basically living a parallel life to me right. is interesting. Uh, but the coffee is especially like with the students, you know, a lot of my students from Columbia mm. are, fall into this category. Um, and yeah, they're just so hungry and eager and I don't know. I just, I just, I love it. You know, um, what about you? Similar. I, I think the, I work in an industry and I'm sure this applies to yours as well, that it's very easy to lose sight of the passion that brought you to the table. You know, there's yeah. a lot of hurdles to clear and a lot of hoops to jump through. And uh, that can uh, that can have a demoralizing effect over time. And there are people in the theater industry who are just hardened, chiseled, like joyless people. Right. Listen, and, kid. Yeah, let me. You know, and th- I came to this industry like everyone else as that like wide-eyed uh passionate person who's just driven by seeing this magical art form uh, on stage and wanting to be a part of it. And when you meet with those folks just getting started in their career, uh, that it, it's very infectious. So I think that's like, that's certainly one, um, one key piece of it. And also, uh, our industry, there's, uh, it's fun to dish. Like it's, it's, uh, there's always a show to talk about. And, uh, it's, it's good to just hear different, um, perspectives on the, uh, on the art that we're all working around too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's good just to, to get out there and meet someone that's not a client to meet someone that's not like, like someone that you wouldn't encounter in your normal day. Um, it can be eye-opening professionally, also just socially. It's it's fun. It's interesting. Um, and you've probably experienced this too. It, it's 
there's something really magical about that time where you meet somebody again in a professional setting and you're like, didn't, <laughs> didn't we have coffee at Fika well, four years and ago that, and now you're the marketing director? Like that you is, go get it. It's, you know, of, exactly. If, if this person for whatever reason is having coffee with you, you will somehow encounter them again. Yeah. And the, the thousand coffees premise is basically that if you get coffee with someone once, they are in your network forever. And as long as you somehow keep up, it could be something so subtle like on Twitter or LinkedIn or or whatever, even if you don't see each other again for years, mm-hmm. if you need a favor, you will get a favor. Yeah. If, yeah. You, if you ask for an introduction, um, you hit them up. Like the coffee, the in-person meeting of two humans for approximately an hour, like gives you a strong enough bond that you could actually call on that person basically any time in the future. Um, and to me, that is a well worth investment of an hour. I've you know hired I mean? people. I've hired uh, yeah. people that I had a drink with two years ago because all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, I do need a line producer. And oh yeah, what's Mitch up to? And yep. it's great. Yeah, That's how it all happens. Yeah. Um, well, I very irresponsibly did not plug my computer into the power. <laughs> and we are riding at 1%. Oh, I was just about to talk about innovations in battery technology. Oh, and so that, uh, we'll have to... <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, well, this was a treat. Thanks for yes. having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode number 10 of the Wizardist podcast. Uh, if you did, please consider subscribing. Just press the big old subscribe button in your podcast app and uh, tell every single person you've ever met to listen. And I'll see you in two weeks.